Good morning and welcome to our time of worship. Whether we are gathering here in person or by way of the internet, it is always good when we can come together as the body of Christ to worship the Lord our God. And we are called to worship this morning in words from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they shall make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And as we worship the Lord our God this morning, we know that he is here with us, he loves us, and he greets us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ in the communion of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Beloved in Jesus Christ, since it is our hope next Lord's Day to celebrate the blessed sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are called to prepare our hearts by rightly examining ourselves. For the Apostle Paul has written, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Let all of us then examine our lives and, considering our own sin and the wrath of God on it, be sure that we humble ourselves in repentance before God. Let us examine our hearts to be sure that we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and that we believe our sins are forgiven wholly by grace for the sake of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Finally, let us examine our consciences to be sure that we resolve to live in faith and obedience before God and in love and peace with our neighbors. God will surely receive at the table of his Son all who truly repent of their sin, believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and desire to do his will. All those, however, who do not repent, who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus and who have no desire to lead a godly life are warned according to the command of God to keep themselves from the Holy Sacrament. All those, if we are, if we are living in disobedience to Christ and in enmity with our neighbors, we must repent of our sin and reconcile ourselves to our neighbors before we come to the Lord's table. For if we partake of the sacrament in unbelief and willful disobedience, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. 
This solemn warning is not designed, however, to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to the supper as though we are righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and that we look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Although we do not have perfect faith and do not serve and love God with all our hearts and though we do not love our neighbors as we ought, we are confident that the Savior accepts us at his table when we come in humble faith, with sorrow for our sins, and with a will to follow as he commands. All then who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who earnestly desire to lead a godly life, ought to accept the invitation now given and come with gladness to the table of their Lord. That we may rightly examine ourselves before God Let us seek his gracious help through prayer. Almighty God, who has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ and who has provided a most wonderful communion with him through the mystery of the sacrament, we ask you for grace to enable us to prepare our hearts to receive holy communion. To all who sincerely believe in your Son, and truly repent of their sins, grant assurance of your gracious readiness to receive and bless them in the supper of their Lord. To all who have not repented and have not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, grant a restraining fear of this supper, lest their condemnation be the greater. But have mercy upon these and grant them grace to repent of their sins and seek their salvation in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess, O Father, that we have all offended your majesty and have deserved your judgment. We have transgressed in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We are truly weak. Be merciful, O God, and grant us your pardon, and let us come to the sacrament in the joy of your forgiving love. Answer us, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we continue to worship before the Lord our God this morning, let's look to him in a time of congregational prayer. God, our Father, you alone are worthy with the Son and the Holy Spirit to receive all glory, honor, power, and praise. You are holy. You are awesome in power. You are God alone, and we come this morning to ascribe unto you all the glory that is due unto your holy name. We pray that we may do this in word, lifting our praise and our prayers before you this morning and without ceasing. We pray that by your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit, we may in fact glorify you in all that we do as well, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, subdue us and all creatures to your holy will that we may keep your commands and find as you have promised that they are not burdensome. We pray that you would rule over us in this way. We pray that you would also rule over the leaders of our nation, province, and city. We pray that you would grant wisdom and guide them. We pray that through them, or in spite of them, if necessary, your kingdom would come, so that we who mark our citizenship in heaven and not here on earth may lead quiet and peaceable lives 
as much as it depends on us, testifying always to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We would also pray this morning for your church here in High River and all around the world, wherever you are worshipped in spirit and truth, in every congregation where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed in the words and lives of your people. We pray that you would make us one, Lord, that the world may know that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that they may believe that you have sent him, and that all of your people may see your glory and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. We long for the day when he will return and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. But Father, in the meantime, we also pray that you would continue to provide all that we need in body and soul. We give you thanks for your gracious provision all the days of our lives, and we pray that you may continue to give us this day our daily bread. We pray that you would give joy to those who are sorrowful and peace to those who are anxious. We pray that you would heal those who struggle with physical illness. We pray especially this morning for Lorinda and Marie and for all those in our congregation, community, and families who may be suffering with poor health. Give them all that is needed in body and soul. Grant healing and strength, peace and patience. Once again this week, we would also pray for all those and especially our brothers and sisters in those places where flood and storm and fire have recently ravaged the landscape. We pray for those who have lost their homes and their businesses. We pray for those churches that have lost their buildings. We pray for those who do not know where their next meal is coming from. You know the needs of all. And we ask that you would provide all that is lacking in these days. And we pray that as you have provided such an abundance for us, we may share with others the blessing with which you bless us, even as we give our tithes and offerings this morning. We pray, too, that you would forgive us our sins, Father, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We pray that as your beloved children, we may imitate you in this, putting on then as your chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Hear our prayer, Father, as we cry out to you this morning and at all times. We ask this of you in the name of Christ as we have been commanded. Glorify yourself in us and through us as you pour out your spirit and grace upon your people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is the third chapter of the book of Ruth. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we turn our hearts to the word of the Lord this morning, let's look to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you acknowledging that the natural person cannot receive the things of your spirit. They are foolishness to us. Neither can we know them, for they are spiritually discerned. So grant, we pray, that your Holy Spirit may guide us into the truth, may illuminate our minds, may give us ears to hear all that you would say to your people this morning, that in looking into your word, Father, we would hear and understand and believe, and that your word may bear fruit to eternal life in our lives this morning and throughout the week. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about Ruth by first thinking about somebody from an altogether different book and a different era. I am thinking of Philip, the deacon and evangelist, that same Philip who, when the church began to be persecuted after the stoning of Stephen, went down into Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And according to the book of Acts, while he was there, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy 
in that city. And we might well imagine under those circumstances that there was much joy. We might imagine as well that there was great joy in Philip's own heart as he witnessed firsthand the power of the Holy Spirit to convert people to Christ through the preaching of the gospel and to deliver them from their sins and from the power of the enemy. What an amazing thing it would be to see the Spirit work in such powerful and visible ways among people who are being converted to Christ. But as you read along in Acts chapter 8, you eventually come to one of the more familiar stories, Philip's encounter with the official from the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And you all remember this story. Philip is there by the road, and he hears a man reading from the scriptures about Jesus reading about Jesus from the book of the prophet Isaiah of all things. So Philip goes over to see whether or not the man knows the one of whom he reads. And the rest is history, as they say. As the Ethiopian hears the gospel of Jesus Christ presented by Philip through that medium of Isaiah chapter 53, he believes, and he asks Philip to please baptize him before he continues on his way to Ethiopia. But have you ever noticed, not the rest of the story, but the beginning of the story? You see, Acts chapter 8, verse 26 tells us, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And that's all that the angel said, as far as we know, to Philip on that occasion. So here is Philip, the evangelist, the deacon, no doubt enjoying the ministry that God is doing through him there in Samaria. He is busy preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and miracles are happening and people are being brought into the kingdom of God when suddenly out of the blue, so to speak, this angel gives him this instruction. And in contemporary terms, in our terms, it's like Philip is being told, Philip, I want you to leave this great revival that's going on in the city of Calgary, and I want you to go out to a stretch of highway in northern Saskatchewan. You don't need to know exactly where. I'll show you when, they're, when you get there, but, but understand that it's at least 100 miles from anywhere, so make sure that you have a full tank when you head out. And that's all. No reason is given or any real direction, just the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says, go, and Philip goes. No arguments, no questions, no excuses. And the whole story that comes after is dependent on this one act of faith and obedience on his part. Philip surrenders himself, as the missionary Elizabeth Elliot once said, with reckless abandon to the will of God. And the world is forever changed. And it's amazing how often God chooses to work in this way. Think of a fellow by the name of Abram over in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So it's all good. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. But did you notice the conditions? Have we ever stopped to think about the requirements for that promise? Leave your country, your people, and your father's house. Leave all of these things and go to the land that I will show you. Oh, and by the way, Abram, I'm not actually going to show you on a map where you're going. I'll just let you know when you get there. Just, just trust me on this one. It's, it's a really nice place. You see, we have this tendency to think of the promised land as some kind of a metaphor for heaven. So we think we know a lot about it and we think we're really looking forward to it and we figure Abraham must have been as well. But when the promised land was first promised, that's all it was. It was a promise. And Abraham was asked to leave behind all that he knew and all that he cared about simply for the sake of of that promise. Sight unseen, no travel brochures, no virtual tours, just go. We respect missionaries today for their willingness to leave behind their home and their family and go often to faraway places where the standard of living might seem pretty low by North American standards. At, at least I, I think we should respect them for that but I wonder how many of us would just get up and go at the command of God, especially if we didn't know where we were going. But this is trust. As we considered last Lord's Day, this is true faith. Specifically, this is the response of true faith to the call and the command of God, just like the hymn that we sang last Sunday morning, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. So call it true faith. Call it obedience. Call it absolute surrender. Call it whatever you want, but understand it for what it is. True faith not only hears the call of Christ, true faith responds to the call of Christ. True faith gets up and leaves country and people and home. If that's what's necessary to obey the word of the Lord, true faith goes out into the wilderness when God says go, and it just waits for God to reveal the next step so that it can follow yet again. And this is illustrated for us so beautifully in our text this morning. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And to understand what Ruth is being told to do, you have to understand the culture and the time in which this story takes place. In those days, in the land of Israel, it was not unheard of, particularly for a wealthy man, to have multiple wives and even concubines. For, for better or for worse, if you'll pardon the expression, 
the practice had not been forbidden by the law of God. And besides, at that time, there were many in the days of the judges who might not have been overly knowledgeable or overly concerned with the law of God. So Naomi is telling Ruth to put herself in a potentially compromising situation. Boaz and his men were just finishing up harvest for the year, and that was cause for celebration. They would be eating and drinking, having a party, as we might say today. And when they were finished, they would be relaxed, ready to sleep. And it's at that point when they have had their fill of food and drink and have retired for the evening that Ruth, having washed and perfumed herself, having dressed in her best clothing, is to go and find Boaz, uncover his feet, and lie down there at his feet. Now we need to be very clear. Please understand, Ruth is not being told to seduce Boaz. Both Naomi and Ruth by this time know Boaz for the honorable man that he is. They trust him. They know that Boaz is not the kind of man to take advantage of this young Moabite woman. But still, the plan here involves Ruth putting herself into a situation where it's possible for her reputation to be compromised. That's what verses 13 and 14 are all about. When Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes what's happening, he says to Ruth, Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You see, he's concerned for what people might think, and he would not have been concerned for that if, as some commentators seem to believe, there were nothing to be concerned about. But our concern this morning is for Ruth. And our concern is for the meaning of trust. Because as honorable as Boaz is in this story, he didn't have to be. And Ruth surely knew by this time that most of the people in the region couldn't care less what some people might do to a Moabite stranger. But still, she believes. She trusts Naomi and Boaz. And above all, she trusts God. And because she trusts, she is willing to put herself into this situation, not knowing what the outcome will be. In a way, she's doing the very same thing that Abraham did, and Joseph, and Philip. She is surrendering herself with reckless abandon to the will of God. She's saying, I don't know how this story ends, but I trust the author to write it well. And that knowing the risks, but not the rewards, she steps out. And that, as I have said, is faith. It is trusting God and obeying God. It is knowing the word of God and being willing to act on that word, even if God does not think it necessary that we would know the end from the beginning. It is absolute surrender to the will of God as he reveals it to us by his spirit in his word, going when God says go and at other times waiting 
to hear. Now this is in fact his will. This is his plan. That his people would wait on him. Like it says in older translations of Isaiah 40 verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But not just those who wait in the sense of just sitting around waiting. I've said before, some people seem to think that we ask God for his grace, we ask him for his blessing, and then we just kind of sit on a tree stump somewhere and wait for the blessing to fall. That's not what God is talking about, what Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah 40. He's talking more along the lines of how we might think of a waiter in a restaurant. I mean, suppose you went out for a really fancy dinner one evening in one of those places where they don't even print the prices on the menu, and if you have to ask, it's probably the case that you can't afford it. After seating you at the finest table, the maitre d' says, Henri will be your waiter this evening, please enjoy. And then a likely young man takes his place to the side of the table, and he begins to wait and to wait, and to wait. And you speak to him, but he just keeps waiting, not saying or doing anything, just waiting. And he doesn't take your order or pour your water or anything. He just stands there waiting. Would you be pleased with the service? Would you leave an extra large tip after the meal that you never ate because your waiter was too busy, well, waiting? Too busy waiting to actually serve you. But that seems to be the way that many Christians think of waiting on the Lord. He has made his promises, after all. And now it's up to us to just sit around and wait for those promises to be fulfilled, as if when all is said and done, we are the ones who ought to be served. But a good waiter is a good server. A good waiter is one who is attentive to the desires and the needs of the one he is called to serve, not just waiting for him to give the tip and leave so that he can go out and spend the tip, but rather waiting for him to command so that he can faithfully obey. I think Ruth understood. She trusted and obeyed. She worked when she was told to, and she waited patiently when she needed to wait. As the old Puritan Matthew Henry said of this text, Ruth had done all that was fit for her to do, and now she must patiently wait the issue and not be perplexed about it. Let us learn, hence, to cast our care upon providence, to follow that and attend the motions of it, composing ourselves into an expectation of the event with a resolution to acquiesce in it, whatever it be. Sometimes it, that proves best done for us that is least of our own doing. Matthew Henry went on, This narrative may encourage us to lay ourselves by faith at the feet of Christ. He is our near kinsman, having taken our nature upon him. He has the right to redeem. Let us seek to receive from him his directions. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? 
And let us earnestly desire and seek the same rest for our children and friends, that it may be well with them also. He will never blame us as doing this unseasonably, and he will not. Because this is what the Father seeks. God seeks people to wait, people to serve, people to trust and obey, people to offer themselves in absolute surrender, as Elizabeth Elliot once wrote, with reckless abandon to the will of God. All that remains for us to do then is to determine what is God in Christ Jesus calling us to do. We have seen what it meant for Ruth to repent and to trust and surrender to the will of God. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? In this season of the year when we as a small congregation look ahead to the various ministries of our church, which will be beginning again at some point, as we look for teachers, leaders, children's workers, as we try to work through what kind of ministry will and will not happen during this unusual time, I can't help but wonder if, for some of us, absolute surrender might mean teaching that class that terrifies us, or maybe giving up that evening at home with the TV for the sake of taking part in a prayer meeting or a Bible study. Maybe it means finally speaking to that neighbor, inviting them to join you in the worship of God. Or maybe it means a season of waiting. Maybe during this time when we find ourselves more isolated and restricted than we are used to, we ought to be opening the word more frequently and listening more attentively to the Lord as he speaks there, ready to do all that he may ask. Whatever it means, let us seek, as the old Puritan said, to receive from God his directions, asking, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then let us offer ourselves in absolute surrender with reckless abandon to the will of our God and Father. May we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us by your word and spirit. Lord, we ask once again that you would open our hearts and minds to all that you would say to us today, and that, Father, as we go out from this place, in the name of the Lord Jesus, just as we gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may go out determined to follow wherever you may lead, to do your will, to glorify you through faithful obedience to your holy word, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We are sent on our way this morning with words from Peter's second epistle. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen.